So here we are, the last of the Ryzen episodes. Unless Discovery or Lower Decks or Picard cover Ryzen, but to my knowledge, this is the end of the Ryzen episodes of the three. Uh, I didn't care for Captain's Holiday. I actively despised uh, the He Who Is Without Sin. So let's jump into this one. Let's start with the horrible. I, I actually imagine I'll get some comments on this on a previous episode, because I commented on how uh, such a shame it was that Cutler didn't come back. So I was doing some research for this episode, because this is her final appearance. This episode was being filmed in March 19th of 2002. She died November 13th, 2003. So that's great. <sighs> I actually, I have nothing of worth or significance to add to that. That just was another one of those little right-in-the-gut kind of moments. That's that's awesome. This episode was directed by Dorn, uh, Michael Dorn. This is actually the only episode he directed here. And uh, I feel bad for him because this episode had severe budget limitations. And, well... Near as I can tell, this is about when the political problems behind Enterprise started to rear their ugly head. I've never been able to 100% confirm my suspicions. I will continue to research as we go through this show. However, I've been under the impression for quite a while that several people at Paramount threw themselves into this episode, or not this episode, this show. That's one of the reasons why Broken Bow had so much weight and so much backing. But as the show kind of kept, got went under production and Star Trek continued to wane, this wasn't the shot in the arm that they were expecting it to be. And so naturally they decided to start cutting support. So they started... And when I say support, I don't just mean money and budget. I mean they stopped actually being able to make deals or connect with the right actors or you know, provide the necessary expertise or connections or personnel or sets or... Anything that they actually needed in order to really do the show. Now, I don't know how severe that is as of this point in time, but I do know that the production of this very episode was troubled by those problems, by them having issues getting a hold of what they wanted. And so they kind of had to make do in a lot of ways, some of which are very obvious, some of which are not so. I think they did a decent job. For the record, this is my favorite of the three Ryzen episodes, so whatever. Also, Rostov's still here, the guy from uh, Voxola. It's good to know that he's still alive. I mean, recurring guest stars are awesome, and, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but no one on Enterprise has died yet. As I've said before, I like that. Because, while I think you should in no way be afraid to kill off a character, you know, there's a reason my friends used to call me the buzzsaw writer, uh, the fact, or the chainsaw writer, if you prefer. The fact is, that's more about not being afraid to kill, not deliberately seeking to kill just because. I was just having a conversation uh, with someone uh, just before this, and we were both talking about the romance of the week and the threat of the week. And I think I've made it clear by this point, my big problem with both is when they're crap. You know, when they're a checkbox, or when you don't do anything with it, or when it's just there because it's expected. 
when you do a good romance of the week, it works out well. And when you do a good thread of the week, it works out well. Right? So, you know, <laughs> I, I point that out with regards to this specifically because that applies when it comes to uh, limitations as well. You know, you, you use them and you use them properly. You try to make the best thing you possibly can. And that also includes killing off characters, the main point I was trying to wrap back around to. So not killing anyone off for the first two years, actually, I'm totally with that. Unless you feel there's a situation in which someone should be killed off, then by all means do so. But don't make an episode and say, okay, we need to kill someone to prove the situation serious. Don't do that. Make the episode, and if it naturally follows consequence that someone should die, then someone should die. They must all die in the end. Anyways, <clears throat> So, Travis is going rock climbing. Reed and Tucker are going to go bar hopping to look for women. Uh, no judgment. Hoshi wants to go talk with people in their native language. Again, no judgment. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, Archer is hired a villa to rest in. Who paid for all this? I'm just curious. I know we've talked about Federation economics a lot and how the actual writers of Trek have no idea how they work and no idea how to make them work a lot. One of the things I find funny is sometimes uh, commenters will point out, uh, you know, the obvious aspects of how Federation economics work, assuming that I don't get that, when what I do usually is I make fun of the Trek writers who very clearly do not get that, and try to make fun of it, uh, because, you know, in episode, they make it clear that they have no idea how their own system works, and blah, 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 blah. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. I am curious who paid for this and how, because the easiest answer to that is the Vulcans did. Remember, this is as far out as Earth's ever been, so the only way Earth is paying for this is if Enterprise is paying for this. You know, they have to physically transit the goods or currency or whatever in order to make this happen. You could obviously argue that RISA just rents things out, you know, on a list. You know, they don't have enough people that they need to do that for. But for a planet whose main thing is tourism, even now, I'm not sure I buy that. <sighs> anyway, so Phlox is going to go hibernate. Poor Phlox. We actually heard about that earlier, so there's another continuity point. We also uh, see this bit. There's this really nice bit, actually. Uh, this goes back to something Jesse Gender told me about, and I mentioned to you guys. Little little bits of character and little bits of continuity. T'Pol and Archer have been getting weirdly friendly. Not in a romantic way, just like actually having, getting closer over the course of the show. It's been hard to notice, and if I'm being blunt, I think it's entirely on the actors more than anything else. But there are tidbits that are still in the script, like this. Not only does T'Pol obviously want him to relax, but far more importantly... She sends him a book, The Teachings of Surak, to help him relax. That's actually thoughtful. Not that thoughtfulness is an emotion, but it is still very thoughtful of her. And you notice he does read it. He does actually get into it. Hell, I wouldn't mind reading The Teachings of, teachings of Surak. That would be fascinating. No, no pun intended. Um, so, I'm going to jump around a little bit in my commentary, because the episode jumps around a bit, and I forgot to... Usually when there's multiple threads going at once, I do my notes in blocks so I can talk about one thread and then the next thread thread. I forgot to do that, so we're just going to go through this sequentially. First thing we see is Tucker is in a bright 
kind of light gray suit with the little purple Hawaiian shirt. And I kind of like it. It's got that Miami Vice thing going on. And we also see some of the budget problems start to yield their head because they keep talking about aliens, which look pretty cool, or at least they would if we saw them, but we just hear their descriptions of them. And the aliens we do end up seeing are not super impressive. <clears throat> In fact, we don't see much. We don't see the ship with the seafood. We don't see the beach. Uh, we don't see much of anything. Budget issues, we already talked about that. Anyways, so naturally, you know, they're, they're, they're women. They're women hunting. Women hunting? There's got to be a nicer way to put that. They're looking to score some tail. No judgment, really. This is how they're trying to relax. They're sailors. And that's obviously the vibe they're going for. And frankly, I kind of think Reed and Tucker being the two to hang out, especially after Shuttlepod 1, makes a lot of sense. So no judgment, no argument here. I'm with it. Um, you know, you do you. That sounds terrifyingly horrible to me. Just blah. The loud noises and the alcohol and the stench and a random woman you'll never see again. None of that sounds appealing to me. Oh, thank you. I'd probably be with Archer, just, you know, reading a book on a nice patio, enjoying the, over, the air. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because I actually have something to say about that. But first we talk about Kayla. Kayla is played by Day Young. I've actually pointed her out before. She was over on Masterpiece Society and TNG, and she was in a simple investigation in DS9. Not that I'm going to hold that against her. She does a decent job of her roles in all three of these, so, you know, credit where credit is due. What I like is she's not really being flirty. She's kind of being flirty, but in that sort of surface kind of let's go out and ha get a thing of coffee kind of a way. It's more friendly than it is flirty. And I think that's a very good dynamic to hit. It's actually the same thing I tended to like back in uh, Oasis, except done even a little bit better here. So credit where credit is due. Although, speaking of flirty, we cut to Hoshi. She's talking Ryzen to the Ryzens. They're very impressed by her accent and the way she's doing, doing it. They make a comment, though, that really stuck my attention. The nights are always beautiful here. Um... We know, thanks to future episodes, that they have weather control devices here, which they use to regulate things to make it a tourist paradise. It's probably one of the most interesting world-building aspects of Ryza, that they are a planet which effectively was terrible for tourism and used their advanced technology in order to gear it towards tourism, which makes perfect sense in both a strategic way and in an economic way, never mind culture and all that fun stuff. So uh, that's actually really cool. I like that idea. And we see that apparently they've already started doing that. It got me wondering, though. I wonder if they got that tech from or developed it with the Vulcans. Remember, the Vulcans know about Ryza. That's how they knew to go to Ryza to begin with. The Vulcans have been out this far and have already studied the place. The Vulcans have been out farther than this, which is important when you consider that the humans have not. <laughs> this is as far as the humans have ever gone, except for Kronos. But let's not talk about that. <laughs> the geography and Star Trek. Anyways, one of these days we might actually get an official map of this freaking setting. And it will be wrong because there's too many things that contradict each other. I, I tend to, most maps tend to follow a similar pattern. You got Earth right here, pretty much on the border of the Alpha and the Beta Quadrants. Down here, excuse me, let me mirror this for you guys. Down here we got the Klingons. Up here we got the Romulans. Down over here, quite a ways out, we've got the Cardassians. And then, over, you know, obviously right next to the Cardassians, we have Bajor. 
Everything else is kind of debatable. The only other thing that, that the maps all tend to agree on is that Vulcan's right next to Earth. That's, that's about as close as we get there. So I, everything else is just kind of speculation. That being said, uh, if you go by some of those maps, Ryza is really close by, which makes sense. It's only 90 light years out. Which means they have been farther than this because they've been to Kronos. And if you're going to tell me that Kronos is closer than 90 light years to Earth, I got a bridge to sell you. Anyways, <clears throat> so <laughs> this also leads to a cool idea with Hoshi. He's he's uh, he he's talking to her alien guy. I, did I even write his name down? Ravis. Uh, Ravis. He he walks over and they start chatting. Um, he gives the name of his planet to her, and she says, "Can you say it slower?" And he says, "No, that'll change the meaning." I think there's a lot of flaws with that idea. But I have to admit, the idea itself intrigued me enough that it got me thinking. Where saying something at a different pace changes the meaning of the word. Which makes sense, because English works that way, doesn't it? I'll go ahead and use my favorite example. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, granted, I'm also fluctuating my tone as I fluctuate the pace of the word, but you get the idea. There are plenty of ways in which we change how we say words which fundamentally change what those words mean. Context. Context clues are extremely important in English. So I, I kind of like the idea of just pacing of, of a word being a context clue for understanding that language. It's a really cool idea. It's fascinating. Um, I love the idea that he calls English a simple language, though. That was a cute one. So, um, then we cut over to Tucker and Reed, who suck at being sailors and hook up with the first two girls to show any interest in them. Come back to that. Then we cut to the seafood boat, which is not on camera, of course. But then he talks about this old couple who are celebrating their 300th anniversary. Two things jump out of that immediately to me, although one, of the, one is just something the whole episode does. The first... I find myself wondering about a romantic coupling that can last that long. I'll go ahead and admit I'm a bit of a romantic at heart, and I'd like to think that if I was capable of living 300 years and also found the love of my life, who also could live 300 years, that we'd still be happy and together in 300 years. Most human society seems to suggest that's actually impossible, but I don't actually agree. I just think most people are not with people that they should be with long term. That's just my opinion, and I don't really have any data to back it up. But it makes me wonder, because it's kind of in the total opposite of what Phlox's people, the Denobulans do, where they you know, shotgun things with regards to their people in order to ensure the biological needs are, are back, uh, covered and making sure that they have as much of a spread of DNA and survival of the species. Maybe. I don't know. I'm still speculating. But since they seem to emphasize the biological side a lot, I'm, I am speculating in that manner. Imagine a species more like, random example, the Protoss, who can mate and do mate. They have males, they have females, and they do so really rarely. And so, you know, any kind of coupling would be the kind of coupling that would be for the hundreds of years range, and thus it would be more of an emotional and mental coupling that occasionally had a physical copulation. Just, just interesting things to think about. Again, the world building of this episode's surprisingly good. Oh yeah, the second thing I mentioned earlier. A lot of aliens here. I know what you're thinking. Duh. But the reason I bring that up, 
is because it means even now, Ryza is already a tourist spot, which means what they're probably doing is desperately reaching out to as many other species and worlds as possible in order to ensure that they all know to come here and spend their money and keep Ryza running. You know, got to keep Monaco, <clears throat> excuse me, got to keep Ryza uh, financially solvent, which not only to you know, maintain their lifestyle and maintain the weather machines, but also to keep them on the map, so to speak. I just, I, I find this whole concept fascinating from an economic and from a cultural perspective, even though it falls apart when you think about it for a minute. Because any organization like the Ryzen government, which is as melting pot deliberately as they are, means that knowledge of a lot of races in this area are going to spread to all the other races in this area, which lines up until you start to introduce races that you know nobody's ever heard of or has ever interacted with, you know, and thus will be discovered centuries from now. The Ferengi are the most obvious examples, but there are a few others. Really, that's more the fault of the other episodes of Enterprise jumping the gun when it comes to continuity rather than this. So if we're willing to most of those continuity problems out of the way, I do still find this approach fascinating. Anywho, <clears throat> moving back on. So, there's a great bit where he uh, replicates the thing that they did back in Strange New World, pulls out the telescope and finds it somehow without even using a tricorder. I have no idea how he manages that. Anyways, there's my star. There's Sol way out there. Again, the spore story I shared back in Strange New World. There's got to be something weird about sitting on a nice villa and relaxing, enjoying the sea breeze, and looking up and seeing your home star that you were at, uh, I, I guess, 10 months-ish? They mention it's been 10 months back in Detained. Um, so I, I guess it's actually been a couple, like a few more days or weeks after that at this point. But either way, a little less than a year because Star Trek does one season equals one year, and we're about done with the season. So yeah, a little less than a year ago. Could you imagine that for a second? Really, really picture that. Imagine you're here you are, and 11 months pass, and you're looking up at the night sky, and there's Sol up there. Just, just bask in that moment for a second. Anyways. <clears throat> so. Then, Reed and Tucker fail at being sailors again. I've had family and friends in the Navy before, and there are certain lessons you learn when it comes to being a sailor. Uh, what Reed and Tucker are doing is something you should not do. Forgive me for borrowing a quote, but uh, <clears throat> Mr. Tucker, never trust a beautiful woman, especially one that's interested in you. But seriously, they just follow them down to the bar area, and after they talk about how much money they make and how many valuables they have, and then shift, at no point are they like, oh my god, you know, maybe we should do something. I guess they're really drunk. But either way, this is kind of a pathetic display. Thankfully, they were just being robbed. Or burgled, excuse me. Because otherwise, this could have gone really badly. <clears throat> Anyways. So once again, they're in their skivvies. <laughs> you know what I like best about it? They're not worried about being safe. You know, they, at some point or another, they will be saved. They'll miss the rendezvous point. People come scanning for them. Blah, 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 blah. So they're not in any danger, but they really don't want to be rescued because that would be absolutely humiliating. And thus, the threat suddenly becomes not escaping and getting free because we might die, but escaping and getting free because 
I don't want anyone else to know what happened last night. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Hoshi and Ravis hook up and go have sex. And I'm okay with that. It is usually Star Trek treats sex entirely to, my opinion, juvenilely. That's not a word. In too much of a juvenile fashion. Tee hee hee, we have sex. Um, Let He Who Is Without Sin is actually a great episode of that. So is Captain's Holiday, now that I'm thinking about it. But those are not the only exceptions. This is something that Star Trek just has had a problem with several times in its, in its career as being a franchise. Here, Hoshi just meets a hot guy. They hang out for a bit. They date for a bit. They go to some random spa, and they have sex. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the way it's portrayed as normal is actually something I'm in favor of, because safe, sane, consensual. And I, I, I know that that's kind of a weird thing to bring up here, but that really is the guiding principle, right? They're being safe. They're both sane. You know, what they're doing is not without the bounds of reason. And they're both doing something consensual. They're just hooking up to have a fun night because they're on vacation. And then they move on. And there's, it's not treated like it's some big love affair. Oh, I love you so. And it's not treated like anything other than what it is, I guess. It is very overt and honest. And I like that. Although it does give me an amusing anecdote, which I'll share in a minute. Meanwhile, Travis is has to come back because he got injured doing his terribly dangerous rock climbing, and they didn't know how to treat him, so he's having an allergic reaction. This then leads to comedy, but I'll give the episode a pass because uh, Billingsley actually does a pretty good job with the physical humor of Phlox being so out of his gourd he basically can't function properly. I have physically been that tired in my life. I have sleptwalked. Uh, which is a very bad thing. It's it, it's something I only do. I get it from my mother. Uh, we both only do that when we are severely, horrifically tired, exhausted. You know, I've I've mentioned before that there are times in my life when I've worked hundred-hour work weeks. Yeah, that is when I would sleepwalk. I am well aware of how I am when I am super out of it, and of course, I have been told exactly how I am when I am sleepwalking. And it, he does a really good job of the presentation. He also, um, I, I feel kind of pissed at Travis, because Travis is just kind of, well, he's just kind of pissy, isn't he? I want my doctor. Where's my doctor? What do I do with that? Wake him up! God! Uh, no, see, because this is a vacation, he is hibernating, something his species actually requires them to do, which we are now interrupting because you decided to go and get an allergic reaction. Now, I, I know, I know, I know, there, there, there's still some, it's not really Travis's fault, it's just, come on, dude, man up, okay? Whap. Don't be such a dick about it, that's, that's all I'm asking. Although I do wonder why Cutler wasn't able to diagnose that. I really do. You'd think she would be capable, but whatever. I mean, it's just an allergic reaction, right? Anyways, <clears throat> so, Flox tries to get out of it, and, I mean, the way he passes out on the bed at the end did give me a chuckle. Uh, this then leads to Kayla. Now, I haven't been talking about her arc yet, even though it's technically the main arc, because it's the least interesting to me. And I want to explain why. Because it's the most interesting to me. She's a Tendaran, and she underwent some surgery in order to hide who she is, and she infiltrates in order to interact with Archer, but at the same time, it's entirely possible that her bumping into Archer was a coincidence, that she was here 
looking for information on the Cabal, and she happened to see Archer and so decided to go after him because she knew about him and his past experience with the Sulabon. Or it's also possible she was here looking for info about the Cabal, bumped into Archer, he was a nice guy, they started hanging out in a friendly way, and she ends up finding out that he has connections to the Sulabon and to the Cabal. And then she starts pushing the matter. You'll also notice that she gets a little bit more pushy about trying to get information on the Cabal the further on in their interactions they go, until it gets to the point that she gets so pushy he finally looks into it and realizes she's a Tendaran. Now, if you don't know who the Tendaran are, I don't blame you. This is the second of two times they're ever mentioned. The last was back in Detained, the group with the internment camp. Uh, you know, uh, Grat, Grot. They mention him in this episode. So, continuity counter, ding! But apparently she's disconnected from him, and I would believe that. So we have this mystery woman, who is a Tendaran, who is seeking information about the Qual. She gives this sob story about her family being killed by the Sulaban. Do you think it's real? I actually get the impression, mostly from the actress's performance, that that actually did happen, and that is why she's doing whatever she's doing. I also get the very strong impression that she is sufficiently desperate to chase a lead, even if it's going to cause potential problems. She pushes very, very hard. It's only at the end, when he restrains her, that she actually decides to cause any harm to Archer, which also tends to make me think that she's not really here for him. This is just kind of a bump on the road. She then says out loud, I need to check out now. I can't allow you to interfere. With what? We never know. This is why this irritates me, because it's a great beginning of a plot arc that never goes anywhere and is never referenced again, ever. It might be referenced somewhere that I don't know about. Like I said, I don't know Season 2 that well. But she will never be back, and the Tendarans will never be back. I mentioned the internecine stuff going on, and the self-sabotage, and the budget issues, and the politics, and the infighting. I wonder if the Tendarans were originally what the Zindi would become. Just food for thought. Anyways, <clears throat> I could see that line up pretty smoothly, to be honest. The only big difference is that the Tendarans aren't really a you know, ex existential threat, which might be why they decided to can that idea. Hmm. So the episode ends. Everyone lies to each other about what they've done. Kind of. Hoshi's kind of over. But uh, last thought before we move on to the end of season one. This is a pass-out episode. N no, think about it. So Reed and Tucker are shot. Bzz, knocked out. Archer is drugged by Kayla. Bzz, he's out. Um... Uh, Flox, he's hibernating. I could add Travis to this list, but we'll go ahead and skip over him, because my favorite is actually Hoshi. Although while everyone else is either drugged or in a coma, she has a slightly more natural method of going in, into a sleep. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just making a joke at this point. It does amuse me how basically everyone in this episode ends up passing out from one thing or another, and the only one who actually enjoys her vacation is Hoshi. At least they got plenty of sleep. Hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next... Oh, 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 wait. Last thing, last thing. Real quick. <clears throat> Check this out. No joke. Today, in fact... Um, oh, hang on. It's not telling me the exact timing, but a little over an hour ago, I got an email from STO, Star Trek Online, 
that the Ryzen event has opened up. I just had to share that because the timing of that amused me tremendously. You know, when you go to Ryzen, you do the jetpack stuff, you know. Okay, now we'll cut off. I'll see you next week, guys. Whew.